Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. and welcome at last to another episode of Retrotube. For those of you new to the podcast, each week my best friend Adam and I take interns to choose a television show from the 60s, 70s or 80s. And then after watching a couple of episodes, we'll talk about it in great length, or at least until I get a fit of the giggles. For those of you not new to the podcast, you'll know I'm telling the truth. After a brief hiatus, it's finally my turn to choose another television show. And I'm staying in America... But I'm going to just pretend to leave the sunshine of LA for the crisp metropolitan bustle of New York for arguably the finest spy show that America ever produced. That's right folks, it's our first episode to focus on the man from UNCLE. For 105 episodes between 1964 to 1968, with the first season filmed entirely in black and white, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. detailed the adventures of the two top agents in Section 2 of the United Network Command for Law Enforcement, aka U.N.C.L.E., an American named Napoleon Solo and a Russian named Ilya Koryakin, both working under the direction of U.N.C.L.E.'s chief, the very avuncular Englishman Mr. Alexander Waverley. During a time when the Cold War was a hot topic, the idea of East and West working together for the greater good of mankind was quite a novelty. And whether it was because of this, the writing, the chemistry between Robert Vaughan and Dave McCallum, or just Ilya's Beatle at Haircut, the show was an instant hit and became something of a phenomenon throughout the United States during the 60s. It spawns a spin-off show, The Girl from Uncle, several pastiches in other spy media, and even a reunion film 15 years later. I have been a little obsessed with The Man From U.N.C.L.E. since I was 10 years old, Adam. But what has been your experience with the show? Do you remember watching it as a kid? Or do you have any particular expectations of what the show would and wouldn't be? And did you enjoy the episodes we watched tonight? I did have experience of watching this as a kid. Yes, this was something that I have very little actual memory of specifics, but I remember the dark-haired, lantern-jawed one and the little elf-like blonde one scampering around and doing their thing. And I seem to remember that I really enjoyed it at the time. It was uh, probably the the moment that I realised that I liked more obscure people because I had no interest at all in the antics of Robert Vaughan's character, Napoleon Solo, and I was much more interested in what Ilya Kuryakin was doing. We were given this show, it's called The Man From Uncle. It's about a man, it's just one man, Napoleon Solo his name is, which means he does everything on his own. It's just one man using his wits to defeat the bad guys, just him, The Man From Uncle. And then there's this other guy... And I found him much more interesting. It's like, oh, well, yeah, we should we should watch him instead. He's much more fun to look at and watch. He is a lot more fun to look at. It was actually supposed to be just all about Napoleon Solo, and even until they started filming, it was it was developed in part by Ian Fleming, who, as we know, wrote some sort of a spy book at some point. Yeah, I vaguely heard of it. Something about some agent somewhere in England. I don't. Some bird watcher. Anyway. <laughs> but he helped to come up with the idea of the man from Uncle. I had no idea about that. Yeah, it is true. It is true. And in fact, he gave the name of Napoleon Solo to the chap who who developed the show, Norman Felton. Norman Felton basically kept trying to develop a show with Ian Fleming, and Ian Fleming was never available. Um, eventually, they met up for, for dinner one night in wherever it was they met up for dinner. And um, they started talking about this spy show. And they came up with the premise of The Man from Uncle, and Ian Fleming said it should have just one main character, like James Bond does. 
<laughs> Essentially, he's pitching. He's. I, I've got this great original idea. We, we should have this spy. He's very debonair. He's very darkly handsome, and he's charming, and he likes the ladies. It's a great unique idea I've had. We should do something with that. That was pretty much all he all he had to do with it because it ended up being completely different from his original vision. Um, they recorded the pilot during filming. They they had recruited uh, David McCallum to play Ali Koryakin, but he had two lines in the first episode and it, that was supposed to be it that was supposed to be all that he was going to do ever in the show but instantly the chemistry between Dave McCallum and Robert Bourne was just amazing and um, the rest is history the, the rest is history and it <laughs> turned out that Ilya Koryakin was a lot more popular <laughs> than Napoleon Solo they had songs about him <laughs> I, I mean honestly there's, there's a song called Love Ya Ilya uh, by Alma Coogan. <laughs> Alma Coogan. You, you, you might want to... I might drop that in at this point. It... <laughs> this, this, is, this is one for Paul Abbott's po- uh, podcast, The Head Ballet. A quick hello to Paul and his excellent podcast. Hi, Paul! All kinds of, of things like that, and you know, David McCallum ended up, as I think I've said in a different episode, ended up releasing albums of his own because he was a musically trained chap. But yeah, it ended up being sort of like the televisual version of Beatlemania because they they were genuinely hounded everywhere they went. They had uh, you know fangirls throwing themselves at them, wow. and it wasn't just your average show. It was it was like a pop culture phenomenon, an actual sensation. Yeah, when I was little, I always had a hands-on-hips kind of hey thing that it was called The Man From U.N.C.L.E., but there was two of them. I just couldn't work it out. In some of the earlier episodes, they all introduced themselves. Um, Alexander Wavy introduced himself as being head of Section 1, um, Section 1 number 1, and he's in charge of, you know, sending people out on to various assignments. And Napoleon introduced himself as Section 2 number 1, and Ilya is section two, number two. So, uh, well, I said number two. Um, <laughs> um, it didn't take long. Um, <laughs> um, I think that's kind of how they managed to keep it as the man from uncle because Napoleon's really the, you know, the higher up of the, of the two, even though Ilya is arguably the far more competent spy. Arguably? I think inarguably. <laughs> I think he's demonstrably the more competent of the two. <laughs> you haven't even got up to series three with Napoleon in the grey suit yet. I mean, honestly. Yeah, the, there's two of them, but there's only one professional. Yes. There's only one who can keep it in his trousers. Uh, yeah, that that is true. <laughs> yeah, so we watched uh, two episodes from the first series. We did. One of which was called The Project Strigus or Strigus Affair. I think it's Strigus. Strigus. And the other one's called The Never Never Affair. I chose the Project Stragus Affair for obvious reasons when you see it. It's uh, historically quite important for the purposes of American television. Quite an important episode because it brings two people together. It's quite a popular episode because of that. And I chose The Never Never Affair because it's, to me, it's unlike any of the other episodes in as much as every week Napoleon and Leah do have an innocent who joins in with their adventures and helps them out and okay. fixes things to you know make sure that whatever assignment they're on works out properly. In this particular episode, the innocent is actually already a member of Uncle, which I thought was was a really nice touch because it kind of you kind of got to see more of Uncle than just you know Napoleon and Leah at Mister Avery's desk. For anybody who hasn't seen the Project Stragus affair. Uh, could you please give us a brief synopsis of what happens? So they are briefed on a Russian politician. He's a bit of a rogue Russian politician. He's a very good speaker and he's very charismatic and he's gaining lots of support. But they consider him to be a dangerous firebrand and not to be trusted. And he doesn't like either the East or the West. He He's very keen on doing his own thing so it's considered that he's dangerous and he ought to be removed from the picture but they don't want to uh just assassinate him and you can see that Ilya Kuryakin looks a bit disappointed 
they just want to discredit him so that he's a laughingstock and he is no longer a feature on the world stage. So they concoct a plan to monkey with him, essentially. And they come up with uh, the Project Strigus Affair. Strigus. Strigus. Is it Strigus? It's Strigus. Strigus. They do say Strigus quite a few times in the episode. I know, but I watched it yesterday. I've slept since. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> I can only even remember the word because I've got it written down here. <laughs> it would have disappeared straight away. Um, so they essentially plant this idea with him that there is something that some secret that the Americans have that he will probably want. And so the more they tell him that he'll probably want it, the more intrigue he becomes and the more he does want it. And it leads on from there. So that's that's essentially the setup that they are hired to do a bit of undercover work and, and uh, plant these seeds and get him intrigued and then use that to discredit him eventually. Yes. And the person, the innocent that they get this week is actually a married couple um, who are in charge of their own extermination company. Yes. They deal with curiously getting rid of rats and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're a very jolly couple. They're very, very jolly um... couple, very cuddly. Mm-hmm. And the husband is played by a very little known actor named William Shatner. Delighting the ladies as usual. As always. I mean, when doesn't he? The first moment you see him, he's doing his William Shatner thing and his wife looks utterly enchanted and delighted by him. Oh, I know. I know. I just wrote down, he's always horny. (laughs) He is constantly. I mean... Everything that he's in. You know, buy a telly. (laughs) Take a cold shower. Buy a Sudoku book. I know. Just do, you know, do jigsaws. (laughs) Honestly, it's fine. You don't always have to. The ladies will cope. I swear the ladies will cope without you, William. (laughs) I mean, you say that. I do say that. They do seem to be enjoying his company quite a lot in this uh, particular episode. All of the ones he meets basically turn into goo in front of him. I I don't know how. (laughs) I mean, to quote Patrick Stewart, acting. That's all I can say. (laughs) I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to put it up front here. There's oh. no there's no bias on my part at all. I'm not a Star Trek fan. I know you're not. People will be switching off in their droves now. I don't I'm dislike Star Trek. Star- fan. Please don't switch off. <laughs> I don't dislike Star Trek. I do dislike Star Trek, but <gasps> I'm not a fan. I thought William Shatner was great in this. He was he was so gloriously Shatner in this. He is incredibly charismatic. You can see why he, he was, Kirk. was chosen for the lead role in Star Trek. And I'm going to Kirk say something does really... leap out quite a bit in this episode. <laughs> well, I'm going, to, I'm going to make a really controversial statement here. I think he's miscast as Captain Kirk. I think he's actually much Please better. Please this... all fan mail to Adam for this statement. Thank <laughs> you. I don't think he was bad as Captain Kirk, and I don't think he was totally wrong as Captain Kirk, but I think he's much better playing this kind of happy-go-lucky, lively, easy-going character. Because uh, he really comes off the screen. He's very, yeah. he's he's incredibly very charming. Luxury Review Motel. Must be a big job. I hope so. The Continental Exterminator Company will be exterminated by its creditors. Patience, Mrs. Donfield. Patience will soon be out of the red and into a white cottage in suburbia, complete with rose bushes and a built-in barbecue. And children. And an automatic washer and dryer and a, and a built-in oven. And children. And creditors. Come in. Good morning. That depends. My name is Napoleon Solo. I represent an organization known as the UNCLE. Well, uh, we haven't received your bill. Well, quite to the contrary. We are here to eliminate bills. As a matter of fact, a very rich uncle just came to life, and he's going to take care of all of your debts. It's funny, I don't remember entering any contests. Poor old... uh... I've forgotten his name already. <laughs> Poor old Robert Vaughan. He basically fades in comparison to William Shannon. He kind of does. He kind of does, which is surprising because Robert Vaughan is actually a pretty charismatic actor in his own right. When you see him in, in other things, he's not especially Napoleon Soloy. He is just a, a really, really good actor and a really intelligent actor as well. 
But William Shatner is great in this. I'll tell you who else is great. Another unknown actor. Oh, yeah. Who is playing the um, sort of henchman to the big bad guy. Uh, a, a chap who probably very few have heard of. His name's Leonard Nimoy. Um, he he does a great job in this too. He's very memorable as well. As a simpering Russian. He's not super convincing as an actual Russian, but he's no. still very good. He's very he watchable. He keeps forgetting. <laughs> he's forgetting yes. he's got to accent. But... Uh, <laughs> The man who was taken from the embassy died in the hospital. His identity was obliterated by U.S. Army intelligence. And what do our agents report about Strigas YL-893? YL-893 is a Michael Donfield. He was one of America's most promising chemical engineers. Last year, he resigned from a large firm to open a small exterminating company on Staten Island. But that company could be a shield for some other activity. Strigas. You're very clever, Excellency. No, you're stupid. Not one of our agents have ever encountered the name Strigas, either published or in secret file. So please, don't come to me with any more of your insipid conclusions. Yes, sir. I might, however, suggest that you send one of our agents to pay a nighttime visit to the Continental Exterminator Company to see what he can see. I do it myself, Excellency. Please don't. I prefer you send someone more intelligent. It's the first time that they meet on screen, and they do meet on screen a couple of times. Speaking as a Star Trek fan, and I'm not like a gigantic Star Trek fan, I watch the original series, the original series only, and the original films. I'm just, I really don't, I really don't care about anybody who isn't Bones McCoy. <laughs> Unless his name's Pavel Chekhov. Give me a little grumpy Russian, or a slightly less little grumpy Southerner, and I'm happy. And also, I, I just, like, Spock is one of, one of the great role models of all time for anybody who... Uh, finds himself on any kind of spectrum, I think. I think he's a great role model for right, anyone yeah. who feels a little other. I don't say that in any kind of a disrespectful way. Um, I say it as a person who classes themselves as other, that because Spock doesn't quite fit in with his people and he doesn't quite fit in with the Enterprise, yet he still finds his own place and carves a way out for himself. It's 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 a very inspirational character and you know, rightly is... Uh, is quite an inspiration to millions of people and has been since 1966. And the rest of the crew like him, despite the, the fact that they kind of affectionately needle him. They like yes. him. I mean, who doesn't like Spock? Yeah. The guy's a legend. Yeah, he's, he's somebody you'd want on your team. Even as a non-Star Trek fan, I do really appreciate seeing Nimoy and Shatner on screen together in something else earlier than you know pre-Star Trek. It's still a special moment. It really is. It really is. And it's it's nice as a fan of both shows to get to see all your favourites in one convenient screen. <laughs> but at one point there's a party scene and uh, William Shatner has his arm around Leonard Nimoy's shoulders. Yes. And it's it's like David Bowie on top of the pops with his arms around Mick Ronson's shoulders. And it's literally the first time that they meet on screen. You just want to take a photo. <laughs> First time they meet on screen, and what's the first thing that William Shatner does? Obviously, he drapes himself over Leonard Nimoy, because that's who he is, it's what he does. To the extent Napoleon gets embarrassed, <laughs> and has to has to drag poor old Bill off. <laughs> Bill does have a name in this, and Leonard Nimoy has a name in this, but it doesn't matter. No. Because they're just playing Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. We also have uh, the other guest star in this is Werner Kemperer who is famous to people who know Hogan's Heroes as Colonel Clink in Hogan's Heroes. However, I don't know what that is, because I've never seen uh, Hogan's Heroes. Me neither. Uh, he was also Bolix in Lost in Space, uh, which I guess somebody has to be. And he was good as well, but he's no Nimoy or Shatner. Anyway, about 20 minutes ago, you asked me what I thought of this episode. I did. And I haven't told you yet. No. Uh, this particular episode, I think, is possibly the best thing you've asked me to watch so far. Are you joking me that's amazing no wow i thought it was incredibly fast moving which you don't necessarily expect for something from something from 1964 it's very short scenes they're in they're out they're onto the next scene it's really punchy the script is very tight and intriguing 
and I like seeing them working together like a well-oiled machine. It reminded me a bit of the Mission Impossible series, yes, as opposed to the films where it's it's a it's as again something we'll probably do because I haven't seen that in many 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 years. Yeah, we'll, we'll be we'll be doing Mission Impossible. But it, it reminded me of that that they've got a mission and they're doing all sort of undercover shenanigans, but it's just it's very very tightly plotted. Yeah, uh, and quite cinematic. Yeah, you're not a hundred percent sure of what exactly is going on mm. until it's all been done, and then you look back at it and you think, "Oh, you very diabolical little chappies, you!" Yes, it, it keeps the audience working. It's not laid out for you. You're sort of having to run to catch up. I think, unlike a lot of '60s TV spy shows and James Bond as well, um, it actually does work as a complex spy thriller. It does, uh, rather than just sort of like a, a framework for hijinks to happen and smarminess and twinkling and that kind of thing it's true i was as you know debating for the longest time about which you really were (laughs) and it's not because i mean i am bad at making decisions (laughs) i mean we won't go through some of some of my life decisions as an example but i am just you know really bad at choosing it was more the fact that it's such a strong series series one and it is more of a straight spy thriller show especially towards the beginning. Honestly, I ended up only choosing the Project Strivers affair because of the Nimoy-Shatner combo. Um, which is which is a good enough reason, I not think. Not necessarily because it's one of my favourite episodes of the series, because it actually isn't by a long shot. Neither of the episodes oh. that we're watching are. I just thought that they were two particularly different ones um, to, that, that would contrast nicely with each other. But, yeah, it, it really surprises me how much you enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I like a good thriller. I, I do really enjoy I, I I wrote down that it's like an Alan J. Pacula thriller. The intrigue and the, the double-crossing. And it had sort of layered motivations and people appearing to be doing one thing, but they're actually doing another and they're pretending to do this. And actually, they're, you know, they're, they, may, they may be on more than one double cross at a time. It's a little bit, a little bit John le Carré as well. It's certainly not very Ian Fleming. No. And it has really good filming as well, some good editing. There's a, there's a juxtaposition where you see one character who's tying a bow tie and then it crossfades to another character who's also tying a bow tie in the mirror at the same time and... Yeah, really nice touches like that. So it's quite cinematic as well. It's not just on the other side of the pond where they'd be doing Doctor Who with five cameras in the studio set and it is essentially just a filmed play and the whole thing is like, point the cameras, go, just act, do the things. Over in the US, they're doing these incredibly expensive, glossy spy thrillers, uh, a shot like movies and... Yeah. And it seems very modern as well. It doesn't seem like something from 1964 because it's so punchy and fast. It is. It is very... It has dated, obviously, in terms of technology. For most of the episode, Ilya goes undercover as... Um... As a bass player from a minor West Coast hippie band. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the character he's playing. <laughs> no, he's not. He essentially has the glasses and moustache of John Lennon from the cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but with yeah. a, a weird bouffant that makes him look like he's in... Uh, the Lemon Pipers or Gary Puckett and the Union Gap or something like that, this sort of big American bouffant. So it's quite a it's quite a striking look he's got. Yes, and a particularly heavy Russian accent. Uh, more than more than he will usually you know <laughs> He's doing levels of Russian is is our Scottish friend. He's being extra Russian. He's being he's being Russian with knocks on. <laughs> While he is being undercover as this chap, this colonel, um, he talks to the bad guy whose name is... Kurosov. Kurosov. He's speaking to General Kurosov and he gives him um, a micro dot that's underneath his thumbnail because, of course, he does because it's 1964. This is after, um, a bit we should mention, he, he wins his trust by warning him that his drink, the drink that he's been handed at this, because this is all happening at a party, like an upscale event. Yes. Uh, and, he's, and Kurosov is handed a drink and Kuryakin, in disguise as the bass player from the Lemon Pipers, comes up to him and says, don't drink your drink, just dip your finger in and taste it. And he goes, oh, no, that's nasty. It's cyanide. Yes. And I'm thinking, is is it wise to taste for cyanide? I don't know. I think a gigantic gulp of cyanide would probably do you a little more harm than just a vague taste. Obviously, it's not actually cyanide anyway, because this is all a ruse, so it's probably a moot point. Probably just put some, you know, almond essence in there. <laughs> I think so. Do not drink the champagne. Merely dip your finger in and taste it. Do as I say. 
cyanide. It will be the first of many attempts on your life. <laughs> yes, we'll go off. We'll go go out on this assignment. But first of all, I need to take a quick trip down to the bakery. <laughs> the scent of bitter <laughs> almonds, cyanide. <laughs> That's what that means. Um, the the ball that they are at takes up quite a bit of time in the episode. One of the most, I mean, I want to say amazing, but I don't mean amazing. But one of the things that happens is that drunken Shatner recites a drunken poem <laughs> about the reasons to drink. And he does this drunkenly. And the overacting, the scenery chomping. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the only person who should also be there is Paul Darrow. <laughs> <laughs> If it be true that I do think there are five good reasons why we should drink. Good wine, a friend, or being dry, unless we should be by and by, mm, or any other reason why. <laughs> Excuse me, madam. Father. Darling, don't you think you've had enough to drink? We really should be leaving. Pardon me, madam. I'm a married man. <laughs> Oh, that's just about all I can stand. Will you please see that he gets home? I'm taking a cab. Uh, yes, if you oh, wish. Uh, I'll come right along here now. Is there some trouble? Once he's recited this drunken poem about the five reasons to drink, his wife comes over and gives him a bit of a, a bit of a look, and then says to him, "Why don't we go home?" In a rather pointed, wifely tone, <laughs> and <he's, laughs> he says to her. Pardon me, madam, I'm a married man. <laughs> and that he doesn't say it, but he mouths to the woman that he's with, my wife. <laughs> and it's just brilliant <laughs> because, like, I don't even I don't even know how a person's face can move that much while they're just saying two words. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like he's made of rubber. I thought he was really good doing that. I thought he was. I, I'm not. I'm not going to shat the fangirl too much, but no, please do because it's nice to hear it once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it takes some guts to come onto a TV show and essentially go, "I'm having this TV show. This is mine now, and you're not having it back for the rest of this episode." So any scene that he's in, he totally dominates, and he totally not in a ridiculous way, not in a way that makes you think, "Oh, calm down." He's doing it within the yeah. bounds of the character and within the bounds of what he's meant to, of what he's meant to do. But he's so owning the screen every time you see him. He really is. He's doing his silly drunk acting, but it's so entertaining, and he's just he's just oozing charisma everywhere. That they're having to get the mop and mops and buckets to mop the charisma off the floor afterwards. That's right. That's right. Like even. In the scene before the ball, where Mike Donfield and his wife are given their assignment by Napoleon, Napoleon's giving him the background on what people are going to find out about him. Napoleon says that um, he's just a regular guy, but with two weaknesses. He loves women and he adores strong martinis. Do you think you can convince him of that? <laughs> and then Shatner's eyebrows like fly off his face, <laughs> do a few somersaults, go around the room slap back on his face, wiggle up and down a few times. He gurns hysterically and then says, I can try. Well, doesn't his wife give him a bit of a look and he acts contrite? His wife totally gives him a look. Like, what the hell is this? What is this? What is this and who have I raised? (laughs) In about one hour, Ambassador Kurosov and his aides are going to discover that YL-893 is the code designation for Michael Donfield, a man who runs an unsuccessful pest control business, which is really a front for Strygas headquarters. And then later at the party, he will discover that Michael Donfield is a very bright but cautious young man, and also that he has two vulnerable spots. He adores beautiful women, and he loves strong martinis. Do you think you can convince him of that? Well, I can try. And just don't overplay your part, darling. <laughs> Everyone does their Captain Kirk acting style 
Uh, William Shatner acting style. Yeah, you know, I can't really do it because I I don't do it. But that's my that's my impression of people's impressions of Captain Kirk. I think that style is all Kirk. He doesn't really do that in this episode. He doesn't do that in this at all. He's doing something yeah. entirely different. So I think that particular acting style. He's Kirking rather than Shatner. Yeah, I think so. And I've I've seen him quite a bit in um, Twilight Zone as well. And Columbo. He crops up several times in that. I've have I seen him? Yeah, I've probably seen him in Columbo. But certainly early Shatner. Pre pre Kirk Shatner turns up in Twilight Zone. And yeah, he's he's a good actor and he doesn't do the strange staccato way of talking. Well he's he was Shakespearean trained. You know, he's like he is a proper, proper actor. And you do often see, like, particularly in an episode like The Trouble with Tribbles in Star Trek, you do see him not looking at the camera, but you do see behind his eyes this kind of broken I'm a classically trained actor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you you would get that with um, Gareth Thomas in Blake Seven often as well. Whereas I think um, Paul Darrow would be loving every minute of the ridiculousness. You could Paul Darrow of... wouldn't care. He'd be like, "Have I got a, have I got scenery to chomp? Well, let me at it." Yes. Whereas you can gradually see uh, Gareth Thomas checking out during the ridiculous scenes. He's like, "Oh." <laughs> I did not go to drama school for this. I was in the RSC. <laughs> now I'm th- I'm throwing papier mache boulders at some cavemen. What's going on? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all this just to pay my mortgage. <laughs> Keep me in booze and fags. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have written that it is weird seeing them anymore with human ears <laughs> yeah but with his own eyebrows which is which are exactly the same because like his his eyebrows are such a distinctive i think they're as a distinctive part of the spot look as the ears uh there's a bit earlier on in the episode uh i, I got a bit defensive uh where kurosov is he's being very mean to mr spock and he's calling him stupid oh he's very it's mean like, we don't, we don't. This is not how we behave towards Mr Spock. We do not call Mr Spock stupid. I nearly demanded satisfaction. <laughs> wow, you and your hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I did did not like the meanness. After the ball that they went to, the next day, William Shatner pretends that he's had a terrible time. He's loving it. He really gets into the spying thing, He's having a great thing, time. He? He's like the world's most frustrated spy. He, he's this incredibly handsome, charismatic man who normally spends his day gassing cockroaches. Now he's going to like the Russian ambassador's ball. He's eating Ferrero Rocher. He's drinking strong martinis. He is. He's having a great old time. And then Kurosov calls and tells them to meet a girl at a hot dog stand. Oh, yes. William Shatner and Napoleon Solo both go off to this hot dog stand. They're expecting somebody to try and take out Napoleon Solo. Like, they are. Not on a date, but to like remove him from the picture. Uh, but no. A lady pretending to push a baby in a pram squirts Shatner with what looks like milk but is actually tranquilizing fluid. Shatner faints spectacularly. He does. Well, I made a note that, like, before we see that that part, when he first meets the woman with the baby carriage, she just starts flirting with him. And I, I just wrote down, all, all women automatically flirt with Shatner. I know. Well, I, it's like a switch. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why. I have to say that, you know, despite him being short and a little round, he's... So on paper, a hundred percent my type, zero percent my type of man. I would never, oh, yeah, I would yes. never in a million years flirt with Shatner. I don't know why anybody would. No, he's he's me. he's not your type. He's not remotely my type. He's not nearly grumpy enough. And because <laughs> even when he is grumpy, I always just think he's living on a level of sarcasm so high above everybody else <laughs> that nobody knows if he's serious or not. And that's what I respect about him. <laughs> Except, yes, it turns out to be a, a trap, so she squirts the baby milk at him and he falls down all drugged and that. Uh, and, yes, uh, I, this is where I, I kind of think this is, this is a very tight thriller and it, I, I wrote down that it reminded me of The Untouchables, the film, possibly just because there's a baby carriage in it, but this idea be, that you you don't know who you can trust, who in the street is part of 
the plan, part of the plot of what's going on. So it could be anyone. It could be the lady with the crying baby walking past who's having a bit of a stress day and is just relieved to talk to a nice man who helps her pick her bottle up. And then, oh, no, she's an agent and she's squirting tranquilizing milk at him. So, yeah, I like that sort of paranoia of it. Yeah. Just, it could be anyone in the street. And by the same token, when a random taxi pulls up at Napoleon's behest, Ilya's behind the wheel, because of course yes. he is. <laughs> it's essentially like Disneyland. It's like the whole thing is just there for their benefit or or the Truman Show or something. It's just, yeah, it's all... it's all very much, very much like that. So um, William Shatner's now out of the picture for a little while. Um, Ilya's rescued him. At that point, just after he bundles um, uh, Shatner into Kuryakin's taxi it has possibly my favorite scene when he when napoleon solo when he's we're shatner's out of the way and oh we can actually see napoleon solo because he's not being charismaed off the screen <laughs> uh, the woman's run off she'd she's scarpered and left the baby carriage in the middle of the road with this crying baby so he looks in the carriage and finds it it's actually a tape recorder and by this time there's a concerned crowd has gathered around him so he lifts the uh, the tape recorder with the crying baby sound coming out of it he lifts it out switches it off and says he just had to be burped and, it, and then he kind of puts it over his shoulder and pats it back and i thought that was very funny it was very fun it was very funny soon afterwards a lovely lady named mr smith turns up that's right a lovely lady named mr smith in the 60s turns up and uh, she asks Napoleon uh, if she can have one of his hot dogs. And it's not even a euphemism. <laughs> and then she asks if he'd like to see her credentials, which again, not a euphemism. It, it, he's very confused by all of this. But she has a one-track mind and all she cares about is Strygas. And she offers him £100,000, which makes him chuckle. <laughs> £100,000. And then gives him an address to meet a man who will continue the negotiations. It's all very civilised and clandestine. But unfortunately, Napoleon cannot take her up on this because he's too well recognised. Another note I made a little earlier is that everybody knows that Napoleon is an uncle agent and that either makes him a brilliant spy or a terrible spy. It's a bit like James Bond always introducing himself by his real name every time he meets someone. There's more overacting as Shatner now goes into the fray, because everybody's going to recognise Napoleon, so Napoleon can't go back out, so it has to be Shatner. And uh, he he explains that Strygas is a formula that will revolutionise modern warfare more than E equals MC squared. I don't know how much E equals MC squared has actually revolutionised modern warfare. No, I don't know. Clearly Strygas will, uh, will do more. Unfortunately, the chap he spoke to recorded the whole conversation of Shatner selling out his country. So they think they've got him by the old short and curlies. And they give him until the following night at 10pm to give them all the formula and all the information. And meanwhile, while this is happening, we have um, Ilya Kuryakin in his uh, round glasses and moustache disguise, still pretending to be the, the Russian kind of undercover advisor. He's... I can't remember exactly the, the specific role he's taken on. But Leonard Nimoy is seething with jealousy at this point, essentially because he thinks that this fictional disguised character is muscling in on his territory and that he's trying to become uh, Kurosov's new right-hand man and that uh, Nimoy is getting uh, elbowed out gradually. He's not happy at all, especially when Ilya insists on um, going to the Shatner residence to uh, you know, continue the negotiations for Strygas. And Kurosov says that uh, Lenin Nimoy has to stay at the embassy uh, because he's a fool. He's a fool. Oof. So then there's a big showdown where essentially they're doing the deal and they've got a million uh, million dollars and Shatner has the plans and information that they need inside mm. his jacket pocket. But then Leonard Nimoy appears. Nimoy. I should call him Nimoy. That's how one pronounces it. Uh, Nimoy appears and says, I've been speaking to the Russian premier and there is no such person as this character that Kuryakin's playing with his moustache. Mm. He he hasn't sent anyone. He doesn't know of anyone. And at this point, Leonard Nimoy has pulled a gun and he's pointing it at William Shatner. I know. Can you imagine? Mutiny. This didn't even happen in the alternate universe of that episode of Star Trek. Strygas, we find out, is a portmanteau of strike gas and is actually just a harmless sleep, sleep gas, which 
would be really helpful in my house because, you know, <laughs> normally I sleep about an hour a day. It's the most unsinister secret plot ever, really, isn't it? Really it really is. The, the idea is that countries are, be, are going to be given stry gas and they'll all fall asleep. It's going to be dropped on them instead of bombs or poisonous gas and, and people will go harmlessly to sleep. When they wake up, their country's been invaded. There's a whole new government in there. But yes, they've been they've been rumbled by Nimoy, who comes in with his gun, and say and he says, Who are you two guys? Like he says Who even are you? In response to this, Kuriakin takes a cyanide pill and dies. He takes a cyanide pill. And the guy who works at the bank, who is also an agent, he runs over and says, The scent of bitter almonds cyanide in the most convincing line reading in the entire show. The scent of bitter almonds. Cyanide. Then there's a great comedy moment when the bad guys say to William Shatner, you deal with this, and when we come back, that body had better be gone, otherwise you're in big trouble, matey. So they all bundle out and leave William Shatner and David McCallum alone together. But then a couple of seconds later, they all bundle back in, and uh, Kurosov cries, Get the money, you fool! He runs in, grabs the money, and they all bundle out again, which uh, I thought was hilarious fun. You see, my note is, it's love he can't keep away. <laughs> um, William Shatner, at this point, worries that Ilya has actually killed himself, which makes Ilya very grumpy. Because <laughs> he, he, he bends down over Ilya and grabs him by the collar, and he's like, Ilya, 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 please tell me you didn't. And Ilya goes, of course I didn't. <laughs> Of course I didn't. Don't but when, be ready. But when Mr. Waverley finds out, I will wish I had. <laughs> and one of my favourite moments in the episode is Napoleon says to Ilya, do you have any ideas, Ilya? And Ilya goes, how can I have any ideas? I'm dead. <laughs> yes. Wow, Ilya. Wow. <laughs> then Napoleon says to William Shatner, you and I are going to have some special pictures taken. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know what they are. We never find out what these pictures really? are. Okay, it's just a, it's just a little special treat. He for just him. said, yeah, "We're just gonna go out and have some special pictures." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm turning into Eric Idle now. <laughs> candid photos, candid. <laughs> he asks him knowingly. <laughs> Look, are you trying to say something? Um, so William Shatner and Napoleon Solo go off to have their special photos taken and Napoleon says to Ilya that he's got to meet one of the guys bring him back to headquarters alive and unmarked which mm. makes Ilya even grumpier and says must you qualify your requests <laughs> but he doesn't come back unmarked because he punches him in the eye and he has quite a swollen eye when the guy comes back and sees Ilya pretending to be dead the dialogue is, I thought you'd be gone. Where would I, where would I go? You're dead! <laughs> In which case, this should not hurt a bit. And then he thumps him. <laughs> <laughs> and then my fav- my other favourite bit is uh, when he's the, the guy's being interrogated in Mr Waverley's office. And Mr Waverley is equal parts avuncular and sinister in this scene. Ilya starts cracking his knuckles... Just for no apparent reason. <laughs> it's like, we'll, we'll just give you back to Mr. Koryakin. And then Ilya just glares at him and starts cracking his knuckles. It's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then and then the guy says, you can do what you want to me. And I'm like, yeah, yes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it, all, it all goes off. There's a whole money exchange. Uh, there's the... Spy shenanigans, essentially. essentially. There's, spy there's things some, happen. Some grade A espionage going on. Uh, and then once the bad guys have gone, Napoleon and Ilya come in and explain exactly how they're going to wrap all mm-hmm. of this up. And they're wearing nacho chips on their lapels with numbers written on. The story behind the nacho chips, Napoleon's is 11 mm. and Ilya's is 2. And when they were originally taking their badges, because they both worked for Section 2, uh, David McCallum picked up the 2 badge and uh, was like, oh, well, it's because I'm in, it's because I'm in Section 2. He didn't realise that there were a load of different numbers. They needed to kind of make sure that everybody knew that Napoleon was, like, the main character and Ilya was, like, his trusty sidekick. Um, so to try and sort of negotiate that, 
Robert Vaughan picked number 11 because one and one makes two. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bless. But it turns out that the formula for Strygas... Oh, it's wax. It's for floor wax. Floor wax, yeah. It's all a ruse. Leonard Nimoy gets to tell the bad guy this, and the final thing he says to him is, get out of here, you fool. Mm. Delivered with so much aplomb, it's unreal. Then William Shatner asks what the next case is, and his wife says, I'm the next case, and then they have a smooch and the credits mm. go up. So yes, that was that was that episode, and I was I was very impressed. It's a good episode. Yeah, I enjoyed the punchiness of it. I enjoyed that it did genuinely take itself seriously. It didn't have the kind of smugness and swinginess that a lot of the '60s shows have, and are no worse for. I mean, there's that the smugness is part of the charm with a lot of these 60s shows. It makes them a little bit cosy. We're having, you know, uh, Roger Moore raising his eyebrow at things. But this, um, yeah, this just seemed much more businesslike. Like I say, um, neither of the episodes that I've chosen are my favourite episodes from the show. My actual favourite episode from this series, um, the two I would have chosen if it was just me watching, uh, would have been The Dove Affair, which is a Napoleon standalone episode where he's actually... Really, really competent the wow. whole episode. Um, my other favourite episode is an episode called The Fiddlesticks Affair, Oops. where Ilya plays a glorious drunk and uh, he he's he's just terrible and gets really, really grumpy at Napoleon's pulling power. And he says to him at, at some point, Ugh, you're so dashing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favourite lines ever. <laughs> the next episode we watched was The Never Never Affair. Could you please tell us what happens in this? I can. This is essentially uh, a catalogue of incompetence <laughs> on, on everyone's part. <laughs> it's it's a spy yes. show doing French farce. It's about, um, I forget the character name, but the actress is Mandy Felden. The, 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 the actress is named Barbara Felden. Oh. And she plays Mandy Stevenson. Right, I wrote it down wrong. Who right. is a Portuguese translator at Uncle HQ. That's right. She's she's best, Barbara Felden is best known for playing 99 in Get Smart. Yes. Uh, but again, I've never seen Get Smart, so I have no idea what that means. I just assume she really likes ice cream. And Cesar Romero also guest stars as the head of Thrush's French division, Victor Gervais. Cesar Romero as we know, is mostly famous for... I mean, he, he's you know, been a character, he was a character actor for decades and decades, but he, surely his most iconic role is the Joker from Batman. Yes, uh, he's very unlike that in this episode. He's, he's not... He's so suave. He's very debonair, debonair. yes. Anyway, the, uh, yes, the idea behind this episode is that we have this Portuguese translator called Mandy who is very bored in her job and she's desperate to do some spying. Uh, luckily, she's quite good friends with Napoleon Solo. She she's the William Shatner character in this episode in that she's always horny and she's always just sort of flopping about the place. I don't think she's as horny as William Shatner. Well, but nobody could be, is. but in, uh, yeah, re- relative, she's, she's that character in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she she is the innocent in the episode, um, and, and I mean, again, it's, it's quite it's quite unusual because she's not really an innocent because she's an uncle agent, and she's not really that innocent either. I mean, have you seen her? I've seen her. Calm down, <laughs> cake. <laughs> she whines and whines and complains at Napoleon Solo that she wants to do some spying, and she's I'm so bored. But why not? She helps. She holds him up at gunpoint. Fake gunpoint, but gunpoint. Another time they're going somewhere important, but she decides that uh, the best thing to do is to um, jam the lift, press the emergency button so the lift jams, and then whine at him. And I'm. But why not? I'm bored. <laughs> but the and both times... I don't do anything, I just give the Portuguese weather a box. <laughs> and it's always sunny because it's freaking Brazil. <laughs> it's always Scorchio. <laughs> just call me Carolina Heard. And, and each time this happens, uh, Jan and Dean burst in. These two surfers. <laughs> these two guys who look like... They look like surf, a surf duet. <laughs> they burst in with... Jan with pistols and look really baffled. They do look really baffled. Um, uh, the first time Napoleon says to one of them, Mandy wants very much to find the romance and glamour of espionage work on either Jan or Dean, I'm not sure which one's which, says, 
So would I. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so she is essentially behaving in a way that in a normal spying organisation, she would be sacked. This is a disciplinary nightmare going on here. It is, but because Napoleon's a nice guy. And she, because she's an attractive lady, he decides to patronise the heck out of her by giving her a yes. fake mission. Uh, with lots of he, he, fake he does, he does. I mean, his heart's in the right place. His heart's in the right place. So he he sends her off on this mission to uh, re- to refill. Um, I can't remember the word they use, but it's it's um, the main guy. I forgot his Alexander Waverley's. It's his uh, uh, tobacco tobacco jar. So he sends her to the tobacconist, but he pretends that the tobacco jar is holding secret information, and that the lid is booby trapped, and if it'll explode unless a, a like an expert takes the lid off uh, and she has to do it. He makes up a route for her to go on. Which is called reverse patterning. Yes, that's right. It's a really convoluted way of basically crossing the road. It really is, yes. She has to go down two blocks and then cross the road and go back up three blocks and go into a cinema and that kind of thing. I would just like to point out, Adam's not exaggerating. This is this is verbatim. That is, yes, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> the actual route. <laughs> it does involve going into a cinema. <laughs> Um, and when Waverly finds out about this, and I was maybe not concentrating because I can't remember how she ended up with the micro dot, but she, but he's horrified that this is going on because the place is crawling with thrush agents. Yes, because um, at the beginning of the episode, uh, Ilya is... He's scampering about like a little pixie. He is, and he looks beautiful doing it. I thought that was a really nice shot, actually, the opening shot. Um, where you saw Ilya running towards the car and his reflection was was filmed in the wing mirror. Yes, that was good. I thought that I thought that was a really really nice really nice shot. And he is running away from these thrush, thrush agents who are they're from the nineteen thirties. They're trilby hoods. Yes, they are trilby hoods, and they are also incompetent because they tried to set him on fire and smoke him out of an alleyway, but Ilya. Because he's a fan of the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Um, just escapes, escapes down to Silver. Yeah, for some reason, they... And uh, Cesar Romero asks this as well. For some reason, they choose to incapacitate him by not doing anything to him directly. They decide to surround him by fire. But they do that by firing firebombs into the air so that they land in front and behind him, which seems very indirect and a bit imprecise. Yes, Thrush, uh, for anybody who's never seen The Man From Uncle. Oh yes, one of my notes was, who are Thrush? My theory was that, uh, is it because they eat snails? Yes. The the, the main baddie, is, uh, the, the sort of antithesis of Uncle, is Thrush. Most weeks, Uncle are foiling Thrush. And Thrush, like Uncle is an acronym. <clears throat> it stands for the Technological Hierarchy for the Removal of Undesirables and the Subjugation of Humanity. Oh my. I know. Thrush are the usual bad guys. And, I mean, they do come up against each other most weeks. You get times where Thrush agents infiltrate Uncle headquarters, Uncle agents infiltrate Thrush headquarters. Like, it just turns out that they one's... One lot of goodies, one lot of baddies, but they're equally as terrible as each other. <laughs> terrible as in inept. Completely inept. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'll say at this point that I enjoyed this episode less than the first one. And I think I <sighs> part of the reason I really liked the first one was because Uncle was so competent. Yes. Here's a task, and they went ahead and they did a really good job at it. They sorted everything out and... You could see why these people are all highly paid secret agents and it all worked really well. Um, but this one, it's, it is just a catalogue of incompetence from beginning to end, really. In fairness, Thrush are more incompetent than Uncle, but Napoleon makes the world's biggest blunder. And then Mr Waverley says to Napoleon, uh, it turns out that Miss Stevenson, has, uh, she's absconded. Why does she think that she is my special courier? <laughs> <laughs> um Napoleon says, oh, well, ah, you see. <laughs> Napoleon goes bright red and says, I don't fancy her. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's definitely what Napoleon says. And Ilya is sat in the background just glaring for an entire scene. His glare gets glarier. He's in such a bad mood, he's turned into steel. He, he has turned into steel at this point. 
<laughs> All he needs is Joanna Lumley to turn up. <laughs> Thrush realised that she has been given some kind of an assignment. Um, so they start following her. They're the world's worst agents. They're even worse agents than the uncle agents. Because it, I can't remember if it's uh, Solo or Kuriakin say, there's lots, of, there's lots of thrush agents out there today. It's Ilya. But how do they know that unless the thrush agents are really obvious? The thrush agents are always obvious. For example, if they drive around in an ice cream van playing music and looking really sinister and shifty. Yes, in the middle of New York City playing London Bridges falling mm. down. And they have I their hands... They have their gun hands inside open ice cream boxes and it doesn't look at all that suspicious. That clearly has no ice cream in Yes. Mandy follows the route as best as she can because she made, she made notes. and She is literally the only person who actually bothered to do anything like that. Because she's now a spy, of course she's gone and she she's put on a, a an Inspector Gadget-style trench coat with the collars she turned has. up because that's what spies do. So she doesn't look at all suspicious with her collar turned up on her trench coat. No. And she's decided to wear contact lenses instead of glasses. And this is an an important plot point. She's wearing contact lenses, fellas. She does what any other spy would do when given an assignment. She gets the bus. She gets the bus, looks really shifty and a bit panicked the entire time. The entire time. While she she grips onto this humidor for dear life. Mm -hmm. She doesn't even even put it in a bag so it can't be seen or recognised. She's just holding it. I know, she just keeps hold of it. She's just had it clutched to her chest the whole time in her sweaty little paw. Because this is is such a a flirting-heavy episode in terms of uh, Napoleon Solo. Uh, It reminded me that one of the reasons when I was little watching this that I really liked Kuriakin is that he didn't do all the boring, flirty stuff. Like, stinky girls. Ugh. Girls smell. Yeah, girls are gross, aren't they? Girls are gross. So he does all the cool, They've all got germs. cool stuff. They've all got germs. Yeah. And this is why I refuse to let girls kiss me, because I don't want their germs. I had no idea you refused to let girls kiss you. <laughs> yeah. This, <laughs> it's not, I'm not single because I'm sad and useless. It's because I, it's a deliberate choice. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want your germs. She realises she's being followed by the two ice cream men, the two very middle-aged ice cream men with, with guns, so she panics even more than she already is, but she spots uh, Ilya Kuryakin across the street, and she cries out, Ilya! Ilya, I think it's Thrush! <laughs> He's going, shh, not now, Mandy, not, not uh, here he in the street. Well, admit to anything. <laughs> shush. Oh, Ilya, I think, now, Mandy. I, I think it's Thrush! My favourite thing in that scene was that he, you know, he tells her to run. I think he tells her to run because he's just like, he can't be bothered with it. And then he, he's like, don't worry, I'll distract him. And he goes and stands in the middle of the road and then disappears like magic. And the thrush agents all come out into the middle of the road and like, what the hell, where's he gone? There's nowhere he could have gone. Is he magic? And um, um, no, it it turns out he's just sort of like leapt onto the back of another car. He's and... doing Marty McFly, but without the skateboard. Yes, he's just clinging onto the back of this moving car. It, it occurred to me the two most famous solos, Napoleon Solo and Han Solo, mm. they both have partners, uh, and they're not solo at all. Uh, but also, both their partners have really great hair. <laughs> Luke Skywalker's more of a solo than Han Solo is. He's Billy Nomates. He's the last Jedi. Jedi Nomates. <laughs> oh, also, I really wanted a Hopsy Topsy ice cream. Yeah, that's a great name for an ice cream company. Who wouldn't want a Hopsy Topsy ice cream? I, I did at one point write that I really miss Shatner and Nimoy. Nimoy. Oh, see, you do like Star Trek. I like them. Oh. I like the actors. I think the actors make it. So what happens is that Cesar Romero inadvertently meets Mandy in a coffee shop. That's right. That's quite a cute scene, isn't it? And she has lost her contact lens, so he helps her to find it. I quite like that um, the head of Thrush in France is such a charming old dog. And they, yeah, they really hit it off. without re- They really do. He doesn't realise that she is the spy that everyone's hunting and she doesn't realise that he's the villain and he's just like a charming old European man. She doesn't realise that she's the spy that everyone's hunting either, to <laughs> no, be fair. This is true. Oh, I beg your Oh, I've dropped my contact lens. Oh, I'm so sorry, mademoiselle. May I help you? Uh, no, 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 you may step on it. Allow me. Sit down, please. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, 
We know it is here, but we do not know exactly where, do we? Uh, no. So we ask ourselves now, what would a clever man do at this point? The answer might be that he would place himself in a position so he might catch a refraction of light from the left. Oh. And there it is. Oh. 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 Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to find myself on my knees in front of such beauty. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, well, thank you very much. They flirt a lot and then he puts her into his car and says, take the young lady wherever she wants to go and then his henchmen turn up and they're like, oh my God, you found her. Well done, he goes, oh, <coughs> yes, of course, I I meant to do that. Yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I do, it's who I am. I make it rain like this. Uh, yeah, let's, um, let's just kidnap her then because, well, she's here, we may as well. And it's not Caesar. I'm just going to point that out here. I'm not saying it wrong. He's Cuban. Uh, he's not Italian. He's not, he, he's not, <laughs> it's Spanish. It's it's Cesar. Cesar it's not Cesar. Oh, okay. So I wrote down at a certain point in the episode towards the end, everyone in this episode is incompetent except for Kuriakin, yes. which was true at that point. Uh, and then immediately after I wrote that, they looked out of the window and said, look, there's the guy from Uncle hanging around outside. <laughs> In full view of us, waiting for his friends to turn out. I was like, oh, Ilya, you couldn't even hide properly. So he's being incompetent as well. He doesn't even try to hide. He's just there, like, kicking the steps. He is. He's just stood there, like, with his big blonde hair beaming out like a beacon. Looking beautiful, minding his <laughs> business. He's sparkling. He's, he's sitting on a little mushroom. And then, just to compound the incompetence, the entirety of uh, Uncle turn up including mr waverley they'll turn up in a big gang and they have a team meeting in the middle of the road right in front of thresher's hideout in full view of the window where yes. frankly they could just be mowed down by machine gun fire if thresh were so inclined yes they, could be. they still somehow managed to save the day by defeating the thrush agents i don't really know how they managed that and then we end with a twist and i rather liked the twist where yes. about her person did Mandy place the microdot to keep it safe? Why she placed it inside her contact lens? Of course she did. That's why we mentioned the contact lenses, guys. Gervais, he rather admired the irony, or he rather enjoyed the irony of the fact that he helped her find the contact lens with the exact microdot that he was looking for. He was not so embittered at being defeated. He wasn't me. No, he, he seemed quite phlegmatic about the whole thing, really, didn't he? Yeah. It's a long, hard day. Well, now, really, you can't expect too much sympathy. I mean, after all, you should have known better than to take on an organization like Uncle. Ah, but it was not quite a fair fight with you on their side, Miss Stevenson. But at least it brought us together. So that's essentially that one. That is essentially that one, and and that's, that's both episodes. Out of the two, I mean, I think I know the answer. Oh, yes. But out of the two, which was your favourite episode? I mean, you do know the answer. Uh, what, what, one was a lot more impressive. I mean, it, I enjoyed them both. I think the second one was a little bit of a come down. It, it did sort of default back to 60s romp in a very enjoyable way, but it, it was in the 60s romp vein. And I think also there can be a sort of cosiness about having a regular baddie as well, in the same way that in um, Doctor Who, when Roger Delgado's master would turn up every second story and it's so you get quite an intriguing setup and like oh what are these mysterious aliens doing oh it's the master okay we know what we are and, and he's obviously such a a nice man the actor but you could kind of tell so it gets very cozy and it sort of it, it kind of takes the edge off it a bit when there's a, a regular like that so it was a lot of fun but it wasn't quite as impressively tight and punchy and business-like as the first episode. No. I think mine may have been the Never Never Affair. Okay. Because of Cesar Romero and how much I love all his work. He's a legend and he's glorious in everything he's in. He was very good in this. And also because it's just, it's, it's the usual uncle versus thrush romp. And also thrush is a really funny name for a baddie. Could you tell me your favourite and least favourite character? I think it's going to have to be Shatner. Shatner's your favourite? It pains me to say it. Oh my goodness, this is going to go out to like the whole wide world. <laughs> he lit up the screen, he completely owned it whenever he was there and whenever he was on and he was just fun to watch and charming. I don't have a man crush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a size eight. 
<laughs> Who's your least favourite? I don't think I have a least favourite, really. I mean, I could say, like I have done on at least two occasions, the dastardly foreigner, but Cesar Romero was so good and so charming that that wasn't really a thing. He didn't play it as a dastardly foreigner. No, he didn't. He was like the only person who was who was any good at their job, really. He was like the competent foreigner. But then he was good at his job by accident. Yes. Because he was going to actually help her because he didn't realise she was the spy. They All his henchmen no. knew what she looked like, but he he hadn't bothered to find out. Yeah, I, I, I think other than just various tedious henchmen and stuff, no, none of the none of the actual central characters I objected to in any way. I think everyone was very good. How about your favourite, either your favourite moment in either of the episodes or just your favourite aspect of the whole show? That's a good question. That's a good question. Favourite moment, I enjoyed the joke of Napoleon Solo uh, burping a tape recorder. <laughs> that was a good moment. It's just, it's just not something I ever thought I'd see. I love the black and white photography. It looked gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, and I think I, I liked the paciness of it, actually. I think sort of when you're used to watching British TV of the 60s, which they were structured and filmed more like theatre. Yes. So it would be like a series of three 10-minute scenes often. But this this had real verve and real... Yes. Particularly the first episode, it rollicked along at a good old pace. I mean, the final question is, obviously, would you watch it again? And you do have to. I do have to, yes, because we're going to do other... We're going to do the other three series. But, you know, if, if, if I didn't have your hand up your arm, or your arm up your back... I was going to wonder what you were going to say then. <laughs> uh, if I didn't have your hand up your back, yeah. would you watch Man, Man from Uncle again? Definitely. I would probably want advising on what were the more plotsy, serious... Because, I mean, I, I did enjoy the Debbie Goes Bananas one, whatever it's called, yeah. the Never Never Affair. It was good fun, but, yeah, it, it was... More similar to other 60s shows where, to get sort of the uniqueness of Man from Uncle, I go for the more plotsy, serious one. Mm. Um, well, that's, that's fine, because I, I'm more than happy to, uh, to advise on the more plot-heavy episodes. Two girls for thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much for sitting through two episodes of Man from Uncle. Uh, and thank you very much everybody for listening in that has been another episode of RetroTube if you would like to get in touch with us you are more than welcome to we are always happy to hear from you on Twitter we are at Retro underscore Tube if you would like to email us our email address is RetroTubePodcast at gmail.com but aside from that um, I think we can close Channel D Uh, I think we can what's your final word Adam? the scent of bitter almonds Cyanide. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. 
Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.